Good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family, and welcome to our midweek edition of our podcast for October 7th, 2020. I hope you're having a great week. Um, A big birthday shout out to our Memorial family having birthdays this week. Uh, Lena Manley, Katie Mintz, Madison Miranda, Johnny Baird, Teresa Rudolph, Grayson Tanner, Deborah Eaton, Kimberly Kennedy, and Gloria Jackson. Uh, happy birthday week to all of you. And uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to celebrate another birthday. You know, October is moving on, and our church staff and leadership is hip deep in the budget process, looking forward to 2021 and to see what God has next uh, for our church. With prayerful and thoughtful consideration, we are stepping out on faith for the glory of our great God. As we continue to open up our ministries, we desire to move forward in the grace that God gives us. Very soon, our children's ministry will reopen on Wednesday evenings uh, with a target start date of October 21st. And upon opening up this ministry, all of our Wednesday evening ministries will move from one hour uh, to 90 minutes. Uh, This will give our prayer meeting, our youth and children, uh, and any other ministries a little extra time to unpack the evening studies and activities. And I believe this will be a great blessing for our church family. Also, our deacons will be meeting next week to discuss uh, in their regular meeting Uh, opening up other parts of our Sunday school on Sunday morning, including children's and youth classes, as well as uh, median adult and young adult class. We are very excited about the possibilities that God has for us as we continue to seek Him in these areas. And our church is growing, and we've been having new guests every week. Our inspiring worship is being fueled by quality worship leadership, and we sense that, you know, something good is about to happen. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. As we walk by faith and not by sight, we claim the promises of God, assured of the unseen and trusting Him for the things hoped for. Our God is an awesome God, full of mercy, full of love and power. Please continue to pray with me for Anthony and Christy Morehouse and their sweet family. Also lift up those who are struggling with illness and other physical, emotional, and financial issues. Pray for our nation. I mean, I'm asking y'all to pray for our country. We need a soul-saving, spirit-drenching revival all across our nation. You know, in 1911... William Pearson Merrill, he wrote the song, Rise Up, O Men of God. And the the words go something like this. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Rise up, O men of God, the kingdom tarries long. Bring in the day of brotherhood and end the night of wrong. Rise up, O men of God, 
the church for you doth wait. Her strength unequaled to her task. Rise up and make her great. Lift high the cross of Christ. Tread where his feet have trod. As brothers of the Son of Man, rise up, O men of God. Folks, we need men who will stand up for God in their homes, in the public square, in their jobs, and in their church. We need women who will let their men be leaders in their homes and in the church. We need men and women of God to lock arms and commit themselves in prayer to the battlefront for the souls of others in our nation, beginning in our own homes and in our churches. We need foot soldiers for the Lord's army, moving His kingdom forward at great and willing sacrifice with all of us pulling together in the same direction for our great King. I just want to say, rise up, O saints of God. Rise up. I'm going to ask if you would pray with me and uh, we'll just pray together as we get ready to study God's Word. Almighty and everlasting Father, what a great God you are. You are unmatched in beauty and majesty. You are the one true God, and no one is greater than you. You spoke this world into existence, and you sustain it by your gracious will. Your precious sacrifice of your only son, Jesus, was a great act of love toward us even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, the ungodly. You've made a way for us to be reconciled to you through the blood of Christ Jesus. Thank you, thank you, loving Father. We are grateful for the wonderful provisions that you give us each day. The air we breathe, the food we eat, even the relationships that we enjoy. Thank you for all your many blessings. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would be with all of our homebound family that may be experiencing loneliness in this season. I ask that they would sense your presence with them right now, wherever they are and whatever they are doing. I pray, Father, for our country, that you would preserve this great nation that has done so much good for your kingdom around the world. Call us back to our former service to you. Call us back to a place of repentance. Call us back to a holiness and righteousness that comes from your Holy Spirit. Father, put to death, crucifying all of our selfish and 
foolish pride. And with renewed humility, call us back to greater Christ-like service for you. We love you, Father. We adore you, Lord Jesus. And we invite you to fill us, Holy Spirit, for your work through us to glorify our Father. To him be glory and honor, strength to our God and to his people, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I have to ask, um, what motivates you to do things? What motivates you to do things? Are, Are you motivated by pride? Or maybe by your desire to possess material things? Or maybe by your longing for power and prestige? Most people are motivated by the desire for security and material possessions. Deep down inside of humanity, there is a longing to belong and to possess. And the natural person thinks that the possessions and the prestige of this world will satisfy their desire. This is why people get upset when they don't get promoted in their jobs or when they can't have as many things as other people or when a person snubs them or when one loses a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Behind these desires is the want for security and possessions. And when we don't get them, we become insecure. When we go right to the heart of the matter, we find pride And pride is sin. Sadly, many Christians are affected by this attitude. The person of faith, however, knows that the prestige and possessions of this world will not satisfy their deepest desires. They're not motivated by these things. Instead, the person of faith is motivated by hope based on the promises of Almighty God. And they push on in this life by faith until they attain the actual reality of eternal life in heaven. See, Abraham is a man who illustrates well the truth that living faith perseveres and endures all through one's life. Abraham was a man who had a life of faith and knew that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Let's read now in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8, 9, and 10. And then we're going to talk about them. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, 9, and 10, it says this. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. By going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Today I want to look at the obedience and the 
the patience and the anticipation of faith. It says there, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. The key thought here is that by faith, Abraham obeyed God. See, faith and obedience can never be separated for the natural result of faith is obedience and the natural cause of obedience is faith. Faith and obedience cannot be separated just as sun and light or fire and heat cannot be separated. See, from these verses in Hebrews alone, we might get the idea that Abraham lived almost a perfect life. But the book of Genesis tells us that Abraham was only a man, a sinner, saved by grace, who had his ups and downs as any believer does. But Abraham Abraham had a bent in his life that characterized faith. Listen, in all of life, God initiates. God is the one who starts. God initiates And then we respond. God took the initiative and called Abraham. And Abraham responded and obeyed to God's call. In Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1 and following, it says this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make you a, make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, this was a significant act of faith on Abraham's part. Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees in the Euphrates Valley. Now, God, in in some way, some fashion, appeared to Abraham. And he said, hear me. I love this because this this comes from Stephen's defense in uh, Acts chapter 7. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. See, God at that time commanded Abraham to leave his country, his family, and his home and go to another land, a land which God would give him. We often miss the importance of such a command because we don't know what Abraham was leaving and what he was asked to give up. Now Ur, which later was known as Babylon, was a port city on the Euphrates River. It was a flourishing commercial city. It was known for its legal justice and cultural activities. Even in Abraham's day, Ur had a history that stretched back as much as 2,000 years. Among its treasures are some of the most valuable artifacts archaeology has ever unearthed. While Ur was morally decadent, it was also a religious center and was best known for its worship of the moon god, Nana, 
and its great temple of worship. So understand, Ur was not some rinky-dink hamlet in the middle of nowhere, but one of the most strategic centers of ancient civilization. So Abraham, before his conversion, was an idolater who served other gods. You remember in Joshua chapter 24, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham lived like all the other people of his generation and was a victim of his culture until God called him out. God called Abraham to himself and commanded Abraham to separate from all his past life. Abraham owed the whole of his salvation to pure grace, for he deserved nothing from God. God chose Abraham because he chose to do so in sovereign grace. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 7, it says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. See, when Abraham responded to God's command, he left all that he had of the security of the world. He was a city dweller and left one of those most modern cities of his day. When he, he left Ur when he was 75 years old and he was well established in life. But he responded without hesitation to God's command. Abraham, however, had to make a decision to follow God at great cost to his prestige, to his security, and material possessions. See, God was very effective in calling Abraham. But there must have been brief moments of true struggle within his soul as he wrestled with his responsibility of obedience. Abraham still had to exercise faith and obey God. God would not exercise faith obedience for him. See, a heavy decision rested on Abraham's shoulders and he chose to serve the living God. Scripture tells us, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Not only did Abraham respond without hesitation, but he responded without doubt. He never questioned God. He never showed him the land But he did promise the land to him. Abraham never asked why, and he never even asked where he was going. Abraham, in believing God, took a great risk. And while his friends undoubtedly thought he was a visionary and maybe even a religious fanatic, he heard the voice of God and knew he must obey it. It was a risk. But faith is not faith unless... It involves a risk. Faith is self-surrender to God. It is giving up all dependence upon visible security and venturing 
forth in reliance upon the unseen God and His promises. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is a risky investment in God. But the greater the initial risk, the greater will be the final blessing. Huh. See, God has used this verse to thrust many a missionary out to the fields of the world. God sometimes uses verses out of context to, to lead His people. Missionaries and pastors have forsaken everything because they heard the, the call of God to preach the glorious gospel of Christ in the four corners, if you will, of the earth. Abraham is the father of the believing and certainly the prime example of one who, by faith, obeyed God. Have you dared to ask God whether He wants you to be a pastor, a teacher, or maybe a missionary in full-time service as part of His will? Do you believe that God would, could provide for you if you left all and followed Christ? What faith, what obedience was displayed by Abraham? But he did not yet have full commitment to God. I mean, what the, the book of Hebrews does not tell us is that Abraham left Ur with his father, Terah, Lot nephew, Sarah, his wife. He was told specifically to leave his family, which would include Terah and Lot, Abraham moved toward the promised land, but got only as far as Haran in Mesopotamia, (laughs) which, by the way, the word means delay. Abraham was delayed in Haran for a long time because he was not fully obedient to God's command and let family ties come between him and God. Abraham did not move on towards the land until Terah died in Haran. That's found in Genesis 11, 31 and 32. See, God permitted Abraham to move on, even though he had not yet separated himself from Lot. Abraham then came into the land as far as Shechem, at the Oak of Moray, which was right in the middle of Canaanite country. He was in the land of promise and God reaffirmed his covenant with Abraham and there Abraham built an altar. I mean, why an altar? Because Abraham knew that the place of blessing for him was in the promised land and it was there he was to worship God, the one true God. Then a famine came to the land, and Abraham did not believe that God could meet his needs in the promised land. He had a a lapse in faith, if you will, pushed the panic button, and went to Egypt. But the will of God for him was to be in Canaan, the promised land. And to leave Canaan was to leave the center of God's revealed will for him. Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. Abraham turned to the world and his own human reasoning to solve his problem, and he fell flat on his face. 
in Egypt, Abraham fell into sin and got into all kinds of trouble. When we're not obeying God, when we are not in the center of God's revealed will for us, things can go from bad to worse. In Egypt, Abraham was a miserable man. So it is that all true believers out of the will of God are miserable, confused, maybe even frustrated. See, here's what happened. Abraham confessed his sin and he got right with God. He then went back, went back into the land, the place of blessing, and then he made a full commitment to God and separated from Lot. The principle here is there must be a separation toward God and away from sin if the believer is to receive God's blessing. Obedience always comes before blessing. From the time that Abraham separated from Lot, he was constantly blessed by God. See, Abraham from the beginning, he had obedience, but maybe not what I want to call mature obedience. It took time for him to learn the importance of faith obedience and bring himself into the center of God's revealed will. The place of testing for all believers is when we are obedient to God's revealed will. So that's the the obedience of faith. Let's look uh, further in verse 9 at the patience of faith. It says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So Abraham was not only marked by faithful obedience, he was also characterized by faithful patience. Canaan was the promised land. When Abraham arrived in Canaan, he was an alien and a foreigner, really possessing nothing. He was a nomad, living in a tent and moving from place to place. He had no permanent dwelling place, and his only solid possession was the promise of God that he and his children would possess the land. Abraham lived for a hundred years in the land and did not possess one inch of it. For a century, a hundred years, he was a pilgrim and a stranger in the land. When Abraham died, the only tangible portion that he owned was a cave in a field that he purchased as a burial place for his wife, Sarah. Abraham endured patiently in faith, knowing that God would fulfill his promise that he and his descendants would possess the land forever. Abraham was 175 when he died and did not possess the land. So was God unfaithful to his promise? No. A thousand times no. God will one day raise Abraham from the dead to possess this land in the yet future millennial kingdom. Abraham died in faith without receiving the promise. 
(laughs) But one day, he will receive it because God is faithful. It says, fellow heirs of the same promise. Isaac and Jacob were co-heirs with Abraham in this promise, and they never possessed the land either. See, the patriarchs were travelers just passing through the land, even though it rightly belonged to them. God did not permit them to put down any permanent roots because they were pilgrims and strangers in their own land. But now we have the anticipation of faith. It says, For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. How could Abraham be so faithful in patience? The answer is that he had a great motivation. He looked for the eternal city, the new Jerusalem, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was not motivated by prestige. He was not motivated by possessions, by power or security, although he had all these things, but by an eternal hope, the hope of being a citizen in God's city. It is evident that Abraham understood that his inheritance was to be more (laughs) than an earthly possession. It was also to be a heavenly state. God obviously revealed to Abraham the truth of the eternal city. See, it is amazing how much Abraham understood. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before Christ. We live today about 2,000 years after Christ. Yet Abraham, looking forward by faith, believing what God had said would take place, looked across 40 centuries of time and beyond to a day when God would set up His eternal city. Abraham understood what the Apostle John saw in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 1 and following says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be among them, and He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, is invisible 
as yet to the human eye. But more permanent and indestructible than any visible city because it is designed and constructed by God. Again, in the life of Abraham, we see the infinite grace of God. God left, excuse me, Abraham left one of the most prominent cities of his day. And God promised him the most important aspect of his inheritance, the eternal city. God gave Abraham the promise of a city that made Ur look like a a one-stop town. Why? Because our God is able and does exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever think or ask. You know, one British theologian, he put it this way. He said, for the Christian, we are called to an unknown country with a well-known inhabitant. (laughs) I like that. Heaven is to be an unknown country for us. The world to come, the age to come is an unknown country. We've never been there. We've never laid eyes on it. We have just like Thomas. We can say, Lord, we have no idea where it is, but we do know how to get there. His name is Jesus and we trust in him. So what Abraham did in leaving his family ancestral land in Ur of the Chaldees and making his way to the land of promise is a picture of what every believer does. We trust in God. We make our great life decisions based upon his word and his call. And we go to an unknown country and to a well-known inhabitant. And knowing this is so important for the living of the Christian life. What is one of the great challenges of the church in our day? That the world is in the church and that the church is like the world. That the world is in our hearts and we're not distinct from the world. And this truth helps us to realize it's not the world that's going to supply us with fulfillment. The world cannot fulfill the promises that God has made to us. Only God can do that. And that allows us to stand apart from the world and not put our hopes in the world or in the things of the world. We can minister to the world knowing that the world can't give us what we really need Only God can, and only God will. And so we're able to care about and show Christian love to others in the world because we don't need the world to give us fulfillment. God is the one who fulfills His promises. We live here as strangers, as aliens, as exiles. This world is not our home. That's what the life of faith looks like. I want to real quickly give you four things that are always true about the life of faith. And they show up in these biblical examples. 
First, there is always a promised work of God. God speaks and promises that in the future he will do something. This is the object of our faith. We trust God that what he says will in fact happen. He will do it. He is good enough. He's smart enough. He's strong enough to do whatever he says he will do. There's always a promised work of God. Second thing in the life of faith is the inner response of faith. There is an outer response, which we'll see in a moment, but the inner response comes first and is the essence of faith. The outer response is the fruit of that inner response. Without the inner life of faith, the outer acts are a mere performance, which Jesus calls hypocrisy and whitewashed tombs. So the life of faith, there is an inner response of faith. Thirdly, the life of faith involves an external response, just like an internal one. Saving faith changes the way you live. Your life takes on a dimension that can only be explained by the assurance of things hoped for. Only God makes sense out of an ark in the desert, an immigration to who knows where, and living in tents rather than building a city and preparing for a child that you're too old to bear. See, that's the way the life of faith is. It doesn't make sense without God. But with God, it is completely reasonable. Fourth, I would say the life of faith enjoys some measure of God's reward now, but not most of it. Noah was saved with his family but he is only an heir of the righteousness that accords with faith. In other words, he was still waiting for the full blessing of righteousness when he died. Abraham found the promised land and he prospered immensely, but he still lived in tents and saw only excuse me, only saw in the future the city whose architect and builder is God. Sarah had her miracle baby. But the countless seed mentioned in verse 12 are far in the future for her. Faith, then, tastes the blessings of God's goodness now, in this age, but not most of it. There is so much yet to come. And that is the point. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11, at the very end, verse 39 and 40, it says this. It says, All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And even we await the full ingathering of all God's people from all the peoples of the world so that the full inheritance of God's kingdom will come to all of us together. Folks, the best is yet to come. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. I can't wait. (laughs) Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Ain't that going to be something? I can't wait. You know, as I, as I wrap this up, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. You know, we're going to continue our study next week in Hebrews 11. 
So until then, I just hope that you're safe and enjoy God's creation. Our God is an awesome God, and He is worthy of our praise. He will do what He says He will do. I hope to see each of you very soon. This is Ridge Adams from Memorial Baptist Church in Temple, Texas. May God bless you as you continue to seek His face.